everyone. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Scott Van Beck, and uh, we've got uh, Matt Barnes uh, with us. Hey, Matt. Hey, man. How you doing? Good, good. And uh, of course, this is uh, the education game. So we thought we'd do uh, something uh, a bit different with this podcast. Matt and I have picked out uh, some plays of the week. Uh, we're going to sort of throw these out, and uh, one, one or both of us uh, are going to... Uh, offer some commentary. So, uh, Matt, you ready, ready for uh, some plays of the week? I was born ready, Scott. Awesome. I, I've heard that said. Awesome. I don't really know what that means, but... Yeah, I don't know what it. that means, especially when it comes to you. Um, uh, <laughs> all right, here's the, here's the first play. Let's hear it. Um, devastated budgets and widening inequities and uh, how the coronavirus is going to impact these two very important variables inside of school. So I, I will say that, you know, I've talked to folks about this back in, I think it was June when the first uh, stimulus package was, was covered. And I'm like, yeah. gosh, how are we going to pay for all this? There's a ton of money that's, that's not coming in and we're spending a bunch of money. So there's no way that these budgets are going to be anywhere close to what they've been for the last several years, which is everyone could admit is less than what is needed even before. We already had an inequitable situation. Right. And so what is going to happen to this whole concept of greater equity when schools and school districts don't have as much money as they had uh, before uh, February, 2020. Okay. I, I just, I, I, I just don't, uh, I mean, you know what it really speaks to? It speaks mm. to the uh, uh, that we're really dealing with an archaic, broken uh, teaching and learning system. And mm. I'm not so interested in the teaching side of it, but I am interested in the learning side of it. And uh, what I know is learning uh, should be uh, should be supported by the right uh, amount of money, yeah. uh, and it should give uh, equitable opportunity. Uh, to all children. I couldn't agree more. What's your, uh, you got a play of the week? My play of the week is a report that shows that 61% of Houston ISD parents are choosing to stay at home um, at the same time that schools are ready to reopen. So, so, you know, two thirds have opted to stay at home as this pandemic is, or at least as the schools are starting to open. So what does that mean, Scott? Uh, there was an old uh, adage uh, when I worked in uh, HISD called called it safety above all else. Nothing is going to happen uh, if we cannot take care of our children and keep them safe. Hmm. So I think that's the first thing it speaks to. The second thing I, I think it speaks to is uh, there's a whole bunch of parents that saw what was coming out of uh, schools and school districts uh, last spring. And uh, quite frankly, you and I have talked about this on previous podcasts. Yep. Uh, parents and families weren't happy with that. Yeah, but and, I think it's uh, more so than I, that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's more than that, Scott. I think uh, I think right now uh, there are there are so many families that have multiple generations that are interacting with the family on a regular basis that this is just really scary to a lot of families from a health point of view. I mean, a lot of the families I've spoken with who have chosen to keep at home or coming or keep their kids at home are just choosing. So for two reasons, one, because they like it better, uh, the, the more flexibility, et cetera, or because they really have worries about a health implication. And again, Scott, you remember, I got super, super sick with COVID back in you did. mid June. Yeah. 
and scary sick. Uh, so I think people are, uh, I think people are worried. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, that we need to keep uh, families safe. And yeah. uh, now I think, uh, you know, moms and dads uh, want to keep all of their kids kind of close to them. The funny thing about schools and school districts, Matt, in my experience, is that uh, they have a, a, a terrible habit of thinking that everything should revolve around them. Mm. Uh, how about uh, in this pandemic, if schools and school districts start uh, providing services that revolve around the families uh, and families in need, that would so, be a neat, that, that would be neat, right? Yeah, Scott. So you're like, you're, you're picking at my wound, my scab that it's, it's a festering sore that <laughs> always, don't, always don't go into too much detail. Oh, it's, it's oozing and it's raw and Ooh. it's, yes, yeah, pussy. Um, so 61% of families are doing the labor that school districts are being compensated for. And there is very little, if any, support, active support given to those families. No money, no compensation, right? And most of those families, y'all, these are not middle-class families oftentimes. These are families who are really kind of living pretty close to the vest, right? Hand to mouth. um, And they're making some huge sacrifices in in the, you know, in order to keep their kids safe. But again, With no I compensation, to, by the way, no compensation, yeah. not even a conversation yeah. about, man, maybe we so should. Fam- help yeah. Families. So families are doing, I think it would be fair to say more of the work yeah. uh, than they uh, did back in February of 2020. Sure. But not uh, only but more of the work. They're not seeing any part of the uh, monetary pie. Right. But not only more of the work, but they're also, um, they're also taking responsibility for something that had been historically given to the school. Well, at least in the last 50 years given to the school. So this is a real inequities are being uh, stretched back to your earlier question uh, because of that dynamic. And I, 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 um, and again, the issue that I have right now is not necessarily that parents should be compensated. I think they should, but also that the schools are doing very, very little to actually go to parents and saying, what do you need? Let's be specific about what supports do you need to help learning happen at home. Instead, they're saying, we're going to get the school building ready. So when you're ready to come back, everything is going to be quote unquote, quote unquote, okay. Yeah. That's me. Yeah. No, I thought, I thought the direction you were headed uh, with that uh, was that uh, schools think they know what kids uh, need and want to learn. Yeah. And, um, you know, shame on them because uh, families uh, can chime in on that too, right? Uh, We got time for one more. A short one. A short one. All right. Here's here, just real quick. This play of the week is talking civics in remote classrooms in 2020. What Mm. could go wrong? You know, the simple answer (laughs) everything. A lot. (laughs) A lot could go wrong. So I, 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 you know, I talked, we talk to our family all the time about politics and just the importance of getting engaged and staying engaged. I don't know how, you know, schools can have conversations about politics, given how emotionally hot this election cycle is. Uh, yeah, especially but, after our young citizens uh, saw that uh, presidential debate. Oh, my goodness. Uh, how, like, how do you, how do you explain that? Yeah, you can't, Scott, you yeah. can't. Uh, Matt, we need to take a, a quick break. And this is uh, Dr. Scott and Matt Barnes. And this is the education game.
Okay, we're back. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Scott and uh, Matt, and uh, this is uh, the Education Game. And uh, this podcast, uh, we wanted to take on a, uh, a blog uh, that I wrote, and it caused Matt some angst. Is it fair to fair to use that word? That I think that's the right word. I'm not angsty, sure what it means. Angsty. I'm not angsty. sure what, exactly what it means, but I think that's the right word. Yes. Yeah. Angst. So, um, we want to invite everyone to to take a look at it and uh, let us know what you uh, what you think of it. But uh, here here is basically the, the the basic premise. Well, let's tell them uh, before before you get there. Let's tell them how to get to it. So go to the theeducationgame.com. Look under the blog. The uh, title of the article or blog post is called "Toilet Paper or Diploma." That is the question. Okay, Scott. I think I think other people are probably feeling some angst with the, uh, with the title of this. So go ahead and continue to explain what, what this is about. All right. So it, it, you know, spoiler alert, uh, it doesn't have to do with comparing a diploma to toilet paper. Well, it sort of does. All right. So here's, uh, here's basically the, the question, uh, inside of the blog. And that is what what are we really after uh, when we start talking about getting kids uh, to uh, to learn and learn in in deep and impactful ways? Yeah. And uh, so what I pointed out uh, when I was uh, in schools and school districts, they had a uh, set of metrics, and uh, uh, those metrics included uh, grade point average and class rank standardized test performance. And, you know, I'm sorry to share this dirty little secret, but I cannot tell you, Matt, how many uh, teachers toward the end of a semester uh, would give kids bonus points for bringing like Kleenex, toilet paper, cleaning supplies. Right, right. Um, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, so what I called the question around is, what, what are we really using our time to do? Um, are, are we really asking about spending time uh, measuring learning? Mm. Uh, or are we spending time playing a game called school uh, where uh, uh, a bunch of adults uh, start making sort of these, I don't know, can I call it a, just a very strange expectation that someone would get more points on a uh, on a uh, final uh, grade card because they brought a Charmin yeah. uh, to uh, to the classroom, right? Right. Um, and it wasn't Charmin because Charmin is the you know the expensive uh, toilet paper. It was probably the off brand that kind of dissolves when you touch it. But that's another another conversation, Scott. So, Scott, I want to I want to hear I want to hear more about this issue though because what you're talking about are these somewhat bizarre ways that we evaluate education or, or learning now. As an example, seat time is one of these key elements of a school, right? So schools are yeah. required uh, for the child to be in their seat, essentially, for a certain number of minutes per year, correct? That's right. That's right. And um, actually, in the blog, one of the things that I talk about, uh, in addition to toilet paper, uh, is uh, every year uh, when I was a high school principal, 
uh, I would uh, deliver uh, a set of diplomas mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. to uh, a, a group of graduating seniors. Yeah. And the high, uh, the high school that I was at uh, usually had about 600 uh, graduates. Yeah. Well, Matt, you know, honestly, uh, if uh, uh, you would have used uh, a measurement as uh, how many of these kids um, are self-directed learners, they can own their learning. They're motivated about their learning. They can describe their learning. Yeah. Um, they can follow through on their learning. How many of those kids of those 600 would actually get diplomas? Uh, I said, I think I said in the article uh, about 450 to 500. So that means uh, 100 to 150 kids basically got diplomas uh, from me as the representative of the school district because they fulfilled something that you just described. Yeah. They sat in a seat for certain number of minutes, hours, days, semesters. Yep. And because they attended, they received credit. In 2020, we should be better than that, right? So you're getting at this question of what is what does it mean to measure uh, learning and the things that are obvious to measure are things like how long has the child been in the seat, right? That's why we have this uh, uh, asynchronous and synchronous, you know, I almost, I almost cursed Scott. We're going to keep this as a kids uh, friendly show. It's a family, family, show. family show. It's a right? family show. But I get worked up about some of this stuff, honestly. Um, the idea that uh, synchronized and uh, asynchronous learning is a measurement when there is no really thoughtful measurement about the child's level of engagement the child's joy of learning, right? I talk to parents all the time and the kids are spending hours and hours. I mean, my son is doing hours and hours in front of a screen all day long, sitting down. There is nobody in this world that can tell me that those kids are learning. Uh, They're being forced to essentially sit in the seat though. Don't get me started, Scott. Yeah. I will come through this microphone. (laughs) Well, I know it's frustrating. It is frustrating. uh, You know, one of the, yeah, one of the purposes of uh, the education game is to help parents uh, figure out a better way uh, to get their kids uh, to not only love learning, uh, but also own their own learning. Right. That's and right. Uh, I think uh, one of the other things that we uh, or I talked about in the blog is uh, uh, that, uh, you know, once you own your learning, no one can really take that away from you. Yeah, and, you call uh, so, you call that a civil rights issue, Scott. I'm I'm glad that you use that language. Talk more about how that is a civil rights issue. Yeah, well, you know, I I, I think when uh, now as I'm uh, approaching an older age, late middle late, age, late, late middle yeah, age, yes, go ahead. I I start thinking about things that I truly own. Uh, and uh, probably top of the list uh, that no one can take away f- from me, by the way, is my ability to learn Yeah. Uh, yeah. and to own, and uh, we use this word a lot, self-direct, you know, my, my own learning. Yeah. And um, I just, you know, don't, I, I, I never saw it much uh, when I was inside the school system. Uh, I still don't see it. Um, and, uh, uh, I think, uh, the public, uh, and, you know, to me, and I think to you, the parents are the public. 
uh, inside a public school. Um, I think the public really needs to call the question, uh, what are we after? Are, yeah. are we about, um, you know, kids schooling uh, or are we about kids learning? Yeah. And, well, uh, it's two, two very different things, right? Right. And when we talked about, you know, the name of this work that we're doing, the education game, it's because there are rules that we can play under. Uh, but those rules are flexible. In fact, many of the rules are outdated. Um, yeah, but you know, you, you know what, Matt? Who gets to define the learning uh, yeah. inside of a, a, a school system? Uh, it's usually not the learner. It's never, never the student. Usually, usually not the learner. Uh, I've been in thousands of classrooms. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the most powerful, powerful questions to a young person is, what do you want to learn today? Yeah. What's and on your mind? Well, it's never asked. And you know what? Yeah. I mean, never, like never, like uh, bell rings, teacher looks at lesson plan uh, and they have it written out. Uh, the students will and that whatever uh, follows the students will uh, is a learner expectation that I dare say those 30 learners that are in the classroom had absolutely no investment uh, in arriving at. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that expectation came from uh, a state legislature, uh, a state board of education, right down the line to the school board. It's yeah. It, well, that's the, you're, what you're pointing out is that it's a structural system issue. It is not the fault of any one teacher, but they are part of a system that, uh, that forces these dynamics that uh, no one can objectively, object, objectively explain. Uh, and again, the students are the last to have a voice in what they're learning, what they're curious about, uh, the method of learning that fits with them, the time of learning that fits with them. And again, that's where a lot of families are saying that uh, they they like what they're doing in the uh, in the virtual school environment. Although even in virtual schooling, there's a lot of restrictions that are being imposed upon families there too. So. The next segment is with uh, Pam, Pam Allen. Pam Allen is a uh, friend and a former admissions officer at Pomona University, uh, Pomona in South, Southern California, a great, great university. And she's going to be on the show talking to us about what it means to actually approach an admissions officer. So again, one of the big fears that a lot of families have is, you know, their child won't be competitive if they don't do the things that schools require of them. And she's going to talk to us a little bit about a different approach to that. Right after our break, uh, we're going to have Pam Allen. This is Dr. Scott and Matt Barnes. And this is The Education Game. And we're back with The uh, Education Game. This is uh, Dr. Scott along with uh, Matt. So what we have... Pam Allen, who is a friend that I met, I guess, a little over a year ago, Pam. One of these just absolute chance meetings, met her on a flight. And again, we, we, she and I joke about the story. Um, I was walking down the aisle of the plane and, you know, there was only a couple seats available. And I said, well, which seat should I look at? I looked to my left and there was, I don't know, a man or woman sitting there. And I looked to my right and Pam's sitting there. And on her lap is a book that's titled, Pam, I don't know, it's like How to Train a Dog or something like that. Yeah, How to Make a Perfect Puppy or something, something like that. Yeah, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm absolutely <laughs> sitting here. 
sat down. We talked the entire flight. It was from St. Louis to Denver. Is that right? I think, or Denver to Sacramento. That's Sacramento. Sacramento. Um, And that's when I got to know that one, she's a dog lover, right? So we have that in common. Uh, But two, and importantly for the show is that she has a long history in in education. uh, And that history is also somewhat atypical. Uh, some of it is very normal, but then some of it is very like unusual. And, and her son is an example of that. And so we had so many conversations about my family, uh, as, as Scott and I have talked about the importance of a self-directed learner, Pam, I think buys that concept directly. Um, again, uh, some time ago, she was the director of, uh, admissions for Pomona university, which is a beautiful campus, uh, uh, private school, private university in Southern California. And, uh, and, uh, and she's still been in the education game for a while. So Pam, with that, welcome to the education game. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank so, you. Me... I have to do a tiny oh, correction. I wasn't sorry. director. I was assistant dean of oh, admissions. Okay. Well, but it's... I, I actually, I like that role better anyway. <laughs> <laughs> hard to be Got director. But... <laughs> well, uh, details here, right? Details. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So the key point, though, is that you paid a lot of attention to what made a student quote unquote, college ready. And so Scott and I have questions for you around what that looks like and, and how that may have be, be, may be shifting today. And before we get into some of that, really telling us a little bit about your son and your son's journey through education, because I think that's actually more appropriate and, and, and interesting. Could you start with that a little bit? Yeah, sure, sure. Well, I have two sons and one was, uh, you know, happy in the public school and just uh, like the social aspect and everything. And the younger one and the older one would go to school every day. And actually when he went to kindergarten, it was really cool. This woman had, she was fabulous. She had all these stations set up and the kids could roam around and and learn whatever they wanted to learn from each little station. And his first day I, I went to pick him up, brought him home. And I said, so how was it? And he said, oh, I think I'm in just in seventh heaven. <laughs> And I said, really? He says, no, really, I think I'm in eighth heaven. That's even better. And he was just loved the ability to move around, learn what he wanted, yeah, all of that. Yeah. Then he moves through to the next grade, and it's starting to get a lot more confined and uh, rigid. And, you know, we're going to do this now, and then we're going to do this now, and then we're going to do this now. And moving on, before he was ready to move on, he would tolerate school and then come home and spend about four hours or more learning on his own. And you could tell when he was home because all the doors and drawers were open, you could sort of follow through the house to uh, the garage. So he picked up scissors and scotch tape and (laughs) all these things to make things out of. So he was always busy making things. So he, he basically taught himself and he did things like figuring out how elevators work. So he could put an elevator in his tree house. So the, the counterbalance between this giant bucket that he wanted to move up into the treehouse, but the, how do counterbalances work and how, how do you keep it from going too fast? And all that? You know, he also had running water up there and an electric fan and he was uh, elementary school. Whoa. So they would just make things all the time. The other thing that we did was we had a lot of reading material available. So my husband was an Eagle Scout and had we and also Scout Master. Mm. And we had lots of 
um, the merit badge books right. around right. the house. So he, when he was in second grade, he read almost all of them. So the unfortunate part about that is by the, or whatever, whatever, this is a good example of school, yeah. right? So yeah. when he gets into scouts and it's time to earn those badges yeah. to become an Eagle Scout, he's saying, uh-uh, I already did it all. I'm not interested in doing that again, just to get a badge, right. not right. interested. Uh, and this was elementary school. So that was, it was really after mm. school. We did a lot of this just after school. I mean, I was just super busy feeding yes. him all the time, feeding, 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 feeding that know, curiosity, supplying, right? Yeah. Feeding the, just supplying the tools and the things to make things out of. This is Scott. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was just kind of interested in uh, how uh, your experience uh, with your son uh, transferred into some of the decisions uh, that you uh, you made as a uh, as an admissions leader at uh, at Pomona. Uh, did that did that sort of shift the way that you uh, looked at uh, uh, applicants? Well, so I was an, uh, an assistant dean of admissions prior to that. I, I would say, you know, from my experience at Pomona Admissions. Um, and we didn't see a lot of kids doing self-learning, I would just say, in those years. It just wasn't so accepted. But I would say what what we were struggling with was trying to find out who are the real kids? Mm. Who really loves doing this and pursues this kind of learning instead of just showing something to get into right. college? And right. I would say all the major universities, the, the top ones, struggle with that. Mm-hmm. They have kids who have perfect test scores, perfect GPA, first in their class. They have a whole bunch of those. They could fill a whole class with those. And do they want that? Not necessarily, right? Yeah, so that's sort of the grade 13 uh, equivalent to what I wrote uh, in the blog that I sent you around pulling diplomas back, right? Um, You know, how, uh, you know, as you leave high school, uh, how does the high school principal decide who gets a diploma? And then all of a sudden they move to you as the admissions officer and you're sort of looking through the same, uh, at least, at least we were, you know, around the self-directing screen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. You said uh, earlier that uh, you, you didn't see very many self-directed learners uh, at, at that time. Uh, do you have any idea why that might've been that, uh, you know, there just weren't, I, I mean, I, I have a hunch like to hear from you first. Yeah. The homeschooling um, phase of uh, education hadn't really, you know, blossomed yet uh, that, that I remember. So, I mean, that's what I would just say is that people were sort of stuck in on the wheel, on the treadmill of just, uh, this is what you do to get in. You got to do this, got to do that. I would say though, that, I mean, as I remember it, so it was 1972 to 1975, long time ago. You know, I, I remember being at 1975, starting to get frustrated with the whole admissions um, product, what we were getting. We were getting these kids who had been um, just starting, really being able to be coached on how to get their a- application, you know, uh, complete and perfect and all that. When I, when I applied... I wrote my own application by hand. 
And I wrote in pencil first and I went over it in ink and then I erased the pencil, you know, and, uh, and I wrote my own essay and I didn't coach and, you know, and I did, and I took the SAT one time, you know, and I read a lot of people, my era took the SAT one time. What started to change by 1975 even was we were starting to see that people were getting help writing their essays. People were getting help getting there, you know, taking the SAT infinite times. Uh, they were getting help um, later in the in the 90s when we were living in Florida. I, I was exposed to a woman who actually w- was um, an academic coach for kids like that. And she was even she had even created a nonprofit organization for kids to step into and run and make it look like that was their idea. Wow. And so here we were, I mean, just even in 1975, 1974, five, struggling to see, you know, when we would hit the, the really exciting kids, we'd run around the office and say, wow, you got to read this yeah. essay. You know, this is, this is, this is a great kid. There's a reason why uh, Matt and I call this the education game, right? So what, uh, what you just uh, described is a big part of the game. My hunch, and I just kind of uh, bounce this off of you, is that uh, continuing with the game theme, families uh, and kids, and 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 usually traditional uh, high school leadership, they think they know what it takes to get a big nod by a higher education institution. And it's things like class rank, uh, standardized test scores, scholarships. And then there's another side of it that I don't think uh, the traditional system knows as much about. Uh, therefore, they don't really value it. And that is this whole self-directed learning. You know, a kid that starts his own business, a kid that has written his own novel or her novel. Right. So do you think that might be a reason for this this disconnect? Yeah, completely. I think... Um... Hey, Pam, uh, we need to take a break, a quick break here, uh, and uh, we'll be back with uh, some more of the education game. Uh, One one thing I would say as a college admissions officer, we we did struggle. You know, if you you eliminate test scores, just looking at the traditional side of it, if you eliminate test scores and you're just looking at grades, for instance, you know, how how do I compare one high school to another, right? I mean, you got an A here and you get, you know, an A there. It's just like, well, I got an A in AP US history, but I only got a one on the test. Well, that smells a little bit. But off the traditional run, how do we get to see those kids? that are so creative. And actually, I can give you a great example because I actually read for one of those college admission, uh, private college counselors, read uh, essays and give comments as a reader because of my experience. And I read one this year, he wrote two essays. One was, uh, it was just describing what he values. Oh, I know, it was was how he learns, but it was, uh, you know, all the little steps of how he learns, but he didn't show anything. And then he wrote a second essay on how he started his own business and all the things that he researched to get the business done and all the things that he did. And it was fabulous. I mean, this kid is going to get in to the top business. He's going to get in where he applies. He's going to be the top business. That's an interesting story. 
Yeah, so I, I, I think this type of, uh, let, let's just call it learner expression, um, is not necessarily valued in the traditional K-12 system, uh, because quite frankly, uh, at least my generation in terms of measurement, we've never been able to figure out how to measure that. Uh, I remember uh, there was a big push uh, back in the uh, in the 90s uh, around portfolios. Portfolios, uh, Matt, never ever made it in the tr- traditional system because A, we didn't know how to uh, assign a, uh, a measurement to it. Uh, and B, it took, uh, in the in the opinion of the traditional system, way too much time to uh, assess. So I think, you know, at least from the K-12 perspective, that's why uh, that was never uh, really valued and, and therefore not so much implemented. I'm not in on the admissions committees, but I know how Pomona did it before when, when I was there. And... Um, we would, if we found a kid like this or a student, a student who had written an essay like the one I described before, who had st- the student who'd written the essay about starting his own business and with all the details. And if that student didn't have traditional grades and test scores in the mix, uh, he was applying mm-hmm. without those, that student would be put sent to a special committee. They would be, that student would be flagged when we read the application that's our system was then that student would be flagged to be sent to a special committee uh, all of the app uh, at the time all of our applications at least two people read them if they were flagged they were sent to a special committee so we had art and music and sports and d- different things that we were looking for just highlighting with students we did have one that was uh, just special students even at the time we had ones that stood out who wouldn't yeah. wouldn't get in on academics and test scores alone so, because mm-hmm, we did mm-hmm. still put that in. So then, then four to six more people read that application with all the students that were put into that pile. And that's, pro- I would guess that's still the way they do it because you could have one student who starts a business and another student starts a business. They could be very different, even though they've, you know, it just depends sure. on how, how much they learned, right? How did they, did they learn on their own or did their parent feed it to them? You know, is it is it right, like the right. academic coach who started the business for the kid or is it? And it's just such right. a struggle to find those who are the real kids. Yeah. So that's that's uh, so, you know, one of the things that we've Scott and I have seen as we work with parents is there's this constant fear that if I don't do the things that the school is asking of me, even though I know in my heart it is a waste of time. In fact, it's actually bad for my son or daughter that I'm going to get punished when the admissions committee looks at this, this child. And instead of having a, you know, three, seven, five, they have a three, two, five, but they've done all this amazing things outside of school. And so that's, that's the risk that parents are kind of weighing. Uh, But then another second part of it is that parents don't know how to support a child in a non-traditional way because no one's done it. And so that's why my story, I mean, my interest in talking with you is both on, on the admissions side, but also as how do you feed a child to keep their curiosity alive, but, but actually not just to keep it, but to grow it. There was a parent I talked to a couple of uh, months ago that talked about she wants to move her child away from grades and completion and towards curiosity and investigation. So Pam, what are, what were the, what are the things that you would recommend that parents do to help develop curious 
investigative students. Well, you described. I, I think the the thing that um, it, what I would do now would be to see where the students' interests lay and provide networking, both people and experiences that would feed that. Then keep asking questions. You know, my son ended up asking his own questions. I mean, I stood back. It was more me asking, how in the world do you even think to do those things that you do? (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) but other students, I would say, what are you learning? What, how, how does it apply? What else? Trying to extend the, extend the learning and the interest. And I'm interested in lots of things. So for me, that's easy. Hopefully the parents can think to do that too. But if a parent can't think to do that, find other parents or other people that you know who can prompt your child. And, and oftentimes it works better when it's not the parent, right? With teenagers, one of the things that Scott and I talk about is the importance of having these assistant coaches. And that's what you're just describing, these yes. resources. Scott talks about in terms of resourcing the yes. child's learning. Um, other people, other experiences, uh, asking those questions. Yeah, Pam, uh, you know, it's a good thing that uh, you went uh, into higher education because uh, uh, we'd have a lot of trouble figuring out you in additional K-12 system. And, and I... I mean, I'm kidding about that, but I'm really not yeah. kidding because yeah. uh, what you just said in, in terms of how you would have used time and how you use time with your with your son literally freaks the traditional system out. You know, just a quick story about, so I live in Boulder, Colorado, and Boulder High had this cool program with kids that weren't surviving in the regular classroom. It, it died with no child left behind, sadly, because of regulations. So so we had a, I ran a program, a tutoring room, and we had um, uh, desks and we had some couches. And there was a girl that came in there every day and she lay down on the couch and slept. And obviously she wasn't surviving in the regular classroom, right? So we put her in this special program. She was a junior. She had to take U.S. history. They said, well, how do you want to learn? What are you interested in? She said, I'm interested in women. And so they let her, they put together this whole program of her learning U.S. history through women. So she would go and she did that. And then she came back to, to Boulder High for the basics. I don't know, English and math or whatever. She was on fire. She read books. She wrote essays. She never once again slept on the couch. Now, did she learn all of U.S. history and the facts? No. Do we care? No. We had this young woman who was on fire. And then she went on some, I don't know, she went on a vacation with her parents. And they put together this whole program of how she could interview the local medicine woman who was using local herbs. Wow. And then she was going to write up about all the herbs. And this girl was just so interested in everything she was doing. Now, yeah. did she learn to research? Yes. Could she write really well? Yes. She had to communicate with people. She had to communicate her passion. Did she sure. keep going? Yes. Yes. So do we care that she learned all of U.S. history? No. How many of those kids that were in the regular classroom forgot everything they learned as soon as they walked out the door, even if they could stand to get an A on the test? That's right. Right. Okay, Pam. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna need to close out uh, this podcast, but uh, we'd really like to invite you back. I know I speak for Matt that uh, we find this uh, fascinating. 
So Matt, I found uh, that conversation with Pam quite interesting. What were your uh, What were your takeaways? There's There's a lot, and I've had a lot of conversations with Pam. But the key one for me was how admissions officers might be looking at our kids, or maybe are looking at our kids very differently than what we think they are. Like we think that. Everything rides on the grade point average and the, you know, SAT scores and the standardized tests of any kind and the check the box kind of volunteer work. But, you know, she's pointing out that there's so much more that goes into what they're looking for. And I just don't get the sense that most students are being prepared for, you know, that next level. One quick point, Scott, the role of the parent, like Pam is playing a very different role in raising her kids um, and that's reflected in her in her experience with the university. And so training her daughter, her son to become much more self-directed and, and curious was something that she saw valuable. And of course, the university would see that as well. Yeah, so yeah. last point about that. Yeah. So. Well, I think we've uh, run out of time, uh, Matt. Yep, we have. Uh, as always, this has been sponsored by Community Health Choice, and uh, we very mm-hmm. much appreciate their support. It's been produced today by uh, Otisteri uh, Studios. Check into educationgame.com uh, uh, for the latest blogs and webinars, and uh, we'll continue our work. Uh, Good being with you, Matt. Always, Scott. Appreciate you.